Well, good morning, Providence Bible Church. Greetings from Grace Community Church, congregation of followers of Jesus Christ who read and teach ancient words. Um, Greetings from my pastor, John MacArthur. Um, He was here a few years ago. We came out together. Uh, He was invited to come do chapel on Friday with the Cornhuskers and... uh, I was his substitute. Um, I don't know if I'll get invited back. We came from Ohio State a few years ago. That didn't go too well, and Saturday didn't go too well either. Um, I hope I'm not a bad influence, um, but uh, I was, and I feel the pain. I uh, talked to the athletes on Friday night, and challenge them to measure their success in the ways that God would, not necessarily the way the scoreboard does. And uh, I'm hopeful that that message resonated despite the difficult time. And Nebraska is one of the teams I root for. I root for two. I served 27 years in the state of Alabama and Birmingham. And so I say roll tide and also go big red um, because I have an affection and an affinity for my friend Ron Brown and and for uh, Gordon and Josh and our relationships with Kingdom Sports. Um, It's been a few years since I've been with you, but uh, I love coming. Uh, There's no fast way to get here, but I I do love coming, and uh, it's a joy to be with you today. And I want to invite you to Mark's Gospel, chapter 6. And I preached a few months ago at my own church, this message. I called it something different. I have entitled it to you, I Am For You. Um, This is a discipleship lesson that is foundational, convictionally. Um, This is in a training season. The disciples are called in Mark's Gospel, chapter 3, verse 13. Jesus chose who He wanted. He commissioned them, called them, And as agents of influence representing the kingdom of God for the king who is over that kingdom, they have been listening and learning. They've been watching and growing. This is training. These are the men that Jesus is going to entrust his kingdom to when he ascends to heaven, having given his life as a substitute for all those who would believe. This is foundational territory for every disciple of Jesus Christ. Housed in the text we're going to unpack today are critical convictions for faithfulness in difficult seasons. Kingdom builders, kingdom influencers, disciple makers. And let me just pause right there. After Jesus ascended, he said, go meet me. And he shows up and he says to his disciples, resurrected from the dead, Matthew 28, all power. And all authority is given unto me. Nobody outranks me. And out of that authority and power, which is both an encouragement because they were doubting and worrying, out of that power I'm commissioning. And I'm saying to you, the first disciples, and to every disciple who follows, I want you to make disciples of all nations present active imperative. It's not optional. Present tense means this is a regular rhythm of your life. All authority is mine, and out of that authority, I am commissioning you. So if you're a Christian, and you recognize the person and work of Jesus Christ and the position of Jesus Christ, authority over everything, the King and His kingdom and you're an agent of that kingdom as a commissioned disciple to make disciples. And you make disciples by sharing the good news that causes them to be baptized. Two participles modify the main verb, tells you how the main verb is to be accomplished. Make disciples by baptizing. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Housed in that action is a profession a transformation by faith, believing in Jesus Christ, 
recognizing I'm a sinner and cannot save myself. This is the message you are commissioned to share. Jesus Christ, God the Son, substituted on a cross to pay a debt that every sinner owes, and all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. He died a death to secure a relief, to pay a payment we couldn't pay, and to provide a righteousness we cannot earn. That's what you do as a disciple. You share what God has done for you, and you share how He did it. That's how you're obedient to the king who has authority. You may not do the baptizing, but you are the agent that brought that person to the place of confessing publicly, I am dead in my trespasses. I died with Jesus. I'm coming alive out of the water with a whole new way of living, united with him in his death, his burial, and his resurrection. And I'm saying it so you can hear it. That's a product of your work in ministry. And then you teach them. The other part is simple. Teaching them. Teaching them everything I commanded you. You lead them to faith. To trust and follow Jesus Christ. And you lead them to obey. To become like Jesus Christ. All to the end that they might enter into the mission of Jesus Christ. The first word which most of us know in the Great Commission says go and make disciples. It's another participle. It doesn't tell you how. It tells you when. It is imperatival, which means it's a force word. You need to do this. But in this particular participle, there is this nuance. While you are going, make disciples. I don't have to go to California to make disciples or Africa. In the traffic pattern of my Christian life, to your business, your school, your workplace, your neighborhood, to the team you play for or coach. You are, while you are going, to make disciples. Intentional, gospel, lifestyle priority to the end that they might trust Christ, be transformed by Christ, become like Christ, and enter into the mission of Christ. How does that happen while you're going? And that's a commandment. That's Christianity for every Christian. That's the call. That's the commission. And then these last words. And lo. It's like pregnant with emphasis. Lo. Listen to me. I am with you all the way to the end of the age. The reason why you should do this is because I have authority and I've told you to do this. But the reason you can do this is because I'm with you. The one with the authority is with the one commissioned to do the work. That's critical conviction necessary to be a faithful disciple in a world that desperately needs light and salt. You are an agent of influence wherever you go. And your purpose is to represent the good news and the great person. And you do not do that alone. Now, I live in California, not Nebraska. I recognize culturally we're in different spaces. But it's really dark where I live. The culture is corrupt. The sky is dark. And it's happening fast. It's frustrating. It can feel futile. It's hard to recognize the America that I knew and loved. Whatever happens there is likely to begin to happen here. And the challenge to your Christianity is to be a faithful disciple maker in a culture that is making it very difficult to be faithful. And you can feel like you're rowing for all your worth and going nowhere. It feels futile. You're doing what God told you to do, and it doesn't feel potent and powerful and transformational. 
Christianity is both not popular, it's not welcomed. And yet here you are, not because Christianity is a crutch that makes your life work, but because you believe that this, these ancient words, this represents the revelation of reality. This is what is. Buy the truth, Proverbs says. Don't sell it. God is a God of truth. Sanctify them with your truth. Jesus praying to the Father, your word is truth. Truth means reality. Truth isn't what you think it is. Truth is what is. The Bible is the beginning, the truth about how it all started. Revelation is the truth about how it all ends. And the Bible in all 66 books, the 67 tucked between the first one and the last one, is everything truth-wise you need to know to fulfill the purposes of God in the world in which you live. You're made for His glory. You've been ransomed for His glory. You're commissioned for His glory. That's why you exist. And Mark chapter 6 is critical convictions about the one who is with you. This is discipleship training. This is special forces training. Your special forces in the greatest endeavor on the face of the planet. You may drive a bus. You may teach a class. You may make widgets. You may have a command in some place in our military. You, you, I don't, it doesn't matter what you do. What you really are is greater than what that is. That's reality. This is temporary. The Bible is the revelation of that reality. The commission I just spoke of is the ultimate reality in terms of your purpose and calling. Glorify Him and communicate the good news about Him. If you understand, would you say amen? I don't know if you do. you do that here? I do that, so help me. Mark chapter 6 highlights three core convictions that are meant to strengthen your faith. To make and help you be faithful in the storm. This is the message that I have chosen to strengthen you. It's an encouragement message. It's a core message. Because housed in this passage is something essential and non-negotiable. The reason I know that is Jesus keeps repeating words and activities that are meant to punctuate in a conclusion where the disciples go, I get it, and they haven't gotten it. And we need to get it, because a lot of Christians haven't gotten it, and it's essential to the mission for which we've been commissioned. Jesus has just fed 5,000 plus women and children. He's communicated, I can do a lot with a little. That's the lesson. I have capacity and you have responsibility. Where are we going to find bread that these may eat? You give them something to eat. That's our responsibility. His capacity is take what we give him for them and he will maximize it in order to satisfy them. Because nobody went hungry, and there were bread baskets left over. Remember that? That was an illustration of his capacity and our responsibility. That's the context. Verse 45, the text. And immediately after the feeding of the 5,000, he, Jesus, made his disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side to Bethsaida while he himself was sending the multitude away. And after bidding them farewell, he departed to the mountain to pray. And when it was evening, the boat was in the midst of the sea, and he was alone on the land. And seeing them, straining at the oars, for the wind was against them, at about the fourth watch of the night, that's 3 to 6 a.m., seeing them straining at the oars, fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the water, and, in, and he intended to pass by them. 
But when they saw him walking on the sea, they supposed that it was a ghost, and they cried out. For they all saw him and were frightened. But immediately he spoke with them and said to them, Take courage, it is I. Do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind stopped, and they were greatly astonished. For they had not gained any insight from the incident of the loaves. But their heart was hardened. This is cardinal, critical, essential, and core. And this lesson is the illustration and the instruction to help these disciples get what they had to have. Imagine a face-to-face and a heart-to-heart after this. We're around the fire. We're debriefing. Jesus is articulating from this story, disciples, these are the takeaways. The reason we did what we did and you did what you did is to illustrate three core convictions about me that are critical for you because I'm the one with you and you need to know who I am. So let me offer you, as if Jesus were talking, what Jesus might say because of this particular situation and illustration, this lesson. Three things you need to know. Staying faithful in the storm, doing what God has called you to do, And maybe even this, doing what you're supposed to do when you don't know what to do. Have you ever asked yourself the question, what do I do? What do you do when you don't know what to do? You do whatever anybody would do who believes this in a compelling way. Convictions are not just beliefs. Convictions are compelling beliefs. Convictions are what you have that motivate what you do. Don't tell me you have a conviction if your action doesn't reflect that conviction. What you have is a belief, but what you don't have is a conviction. When I talk convictions, I'm talking about compelling beliefs because compelling beliefs are markers and pillars that help you know what to do and what you will do and must do because of these convictions. Conviction number one, what Jesus might say, sit down, debrief, processing this training mission. He would say, guys, disciples of mine, I want you to know, number one, I am sovereign. I am acting and I am ruling. I am not reacting and responding. I have a purpose and a plan. I am a king who rules over everything and everyone. Let me show you where I see that plainly, verse 45, and immediately he made his disciples get into the boat. He forced them, he compelled them, he charged them with authority, get in the boat. I'm in charge, I have a purpose, I have a plan. He compelled them, he made them. Notice the second statement implying authority and sovereignty, ruling capacity, while he himself, that's emphatic, he plus himself punctuates the reality that he, with his authority, dismissed, sent the multitude away. Now, in order to appreciate the force of this, you have to understand parallel passage, John 6. This story is found in Mark 6, 45 to 52, Matthew 14, 22 to 33, and John 6, 14 through 21. Listen to the backstory that informs you as to the authority and sovereignty on display. John 6, verse 14, and when therefore the people saw the sign, now that's a reference to the feeding of the 5,000 plus women and children. A sign was a visible validation of his identity, capacity, and deity. It's a sign. It points to something, who he is, what he can do, his identity and his deity. They saw that sign. It was a sign which He had performed, and this is what they said, the crowd, the multitude. This is of truth, the prophet, a reference to the Messiah, 
the anointed one who is coming. This is the prophet who has come into the world. And Jesus, verse 15, John 6, Jesus therefore perceiving that they were intending to come and take him by force. That's the same word he made his disciples get in the boat, the word force. Perceiving that they were intending to come and take him by force to make him king withdrew again to the mountain by himself alone. So you have a crowd convinced their action, we're going to make you king. And the king who is sovereign says, not now, not this way. It's not your plan. It's my plan. The mob isn't going to make me king. It wasn't according to his plan. It wasn't according to the will of God. Maybe Jesus would say it like this. I have a plan, and it's not determined by the will of the people, but by the will of God. I have a time which is defined by the Father, not by the circumstance. I am sovereign. I'm not a victim. I'm not going to be victimized, even if it's to make me king, because later they're going to try to take his life. I am sovereign, not a victim. I'm in control, not the crowd or the culture. I have, I have authority regardless of the majority and the will of the many. Rest in my rule. I mean, we, we don't have time today, but you could go through the book of John and just look at the number of times where Jesus will say, my hour is not yet come. My hour has not yet come, the turning of the water into wine to his mother. His family members wanted him to go up to the feast of the Passover. He said, I do not go up to this feast because my time has not yet fully come, John 7. In the face of his adversaries, he's saying, I know him, referring to his father. I'm from him, referring to God. And he, God the Father, sent me, and they were seeking, therefore, to seize him. And no man laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. I want you to understand that Jesus Christ has sovereign authority, and there is a purpose and a plan, and not only affected him, it affects you. You can rest in that rule. You can rest in God's sovereign timing and God's plan, because he's going to say in John 12, my hour has come. He resolutely set his face to go to Jerusalem, Luke chapter 9, because his hour had come. At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. He gave himself as a ransom for many, the testimony born at the proper time. Disciples of mine, there is a plan, an unfolding plan. I'm a king who rules over everything. It's not random, and it doesn't just involve me. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11, one of the cornerstones and foundations of Christian benediction and blessing, reasons to praise great, our great God, is found in Ephesians 1, in Him, Christ, we were also chosen, we were also chosen, having been predestined, that's a plan and a purpose and a divine decision, according to the plan of Him, God, who works out everything, did you hear it? Works out everything in conformity with the purpose of His will. Listen to Isaiah 25, the praise of Isaiah, praising Yahweh, thou art my God, I will exalt thee, I will give thanks to your name. Why? Because you have worked wonders, plans formed long ago with perfect faithfulness. Acts 4, 28. Luke reports what is happening. Is happening because, here it is, they, the actors, this is Herod, Pontius Pilate, the Gentiles, the Jews, they... Even the bad ones are gathered together, here's the quote, to do whatever your hand or power and your purpose predestined to occur. Why is this important? Because in the crazy chaos of your reality, when the winds are blowing against you, you're in the boat you're supposed to be in. 
You need to recognize and rest in the rule, authority, purpose, and plan of God who's in control of every action, every actor, both the process and the progress. I'm sovereign. I have a plan for me and I have a plan for you. Rest in that rule. Relax. Listen, some of you are concerned about the culture and the currents and you wonder or fret. You watch too much news. You get fixated. You get fearful. You look at the trends for the future of your life, your family, and your ministry. Let me tell you something. Jesus Christ conquers culture and He rules over it all. That must be a conviction. Because you don't control everything, but the one who does is the one who says, I'm with you all the way to the end of the age. Rest in me. And listen, this question may come up. It's housed in this passage applicationally. What do you do when you don't know what to do? You do what he told you to do. You keep rowing. He made them get in the boat. He told them to the road to the other side. He bid them farewell. So he not only commanded it, he affirmed it. It's not like, hey, guys, where are you going? If God has commanded it and affirmed it, keep doing it. Yeah, but we're not going anywhere. See, because most Christians think it's only the will of God if it works. If there's wind in the sail and I'm making progress, you start a church and it grows like a weed. God's in it. doesn't grow like a weed. God must not be in it. No, the question to ask is, what did the sovereign one command you to do? Did he affirm it? Keep doing it. Here's an application. Because he's sovereign, if he commanded it, you need to do it. Keep rowing. Some of you are in marriages that are hard. Some of you are in spaces in ministry that are hard. Did he command it? Did he affirm it? Keep doing it. He's ruling over the time. When he wants it to happen, it will happen. Rest in that rule. Number two. Disciples of mine, I'm not only sovereign, I'm human. I want you to notice the words in verse 46. He departed to the mountain to pray. Verse 47, he was alone on the land. He was praying alone. This was his pattern. Luke's Gospel, chapter 5, verse 16. He himself, referring to Jesus, would often slip away to the wilderness and pray. John 6, 15, parallel passage, withdrew again. Jesus withdrew again. That's the punctuation point. To the mountain by himself alone to pray. Matthew 14, 23, he sent the multitudes away. He went up into the mountains alone to pray. This is the revelation that not only am I sovereign, I'm human. I not only want you to rest in me, I want you, here's the key statement, I want you to rest like me. I want you to do what I do. Because in your humanity, you're weak. Jesus was a human being, and as a human being... And because we are human beings, we need to follow his example. As a man in his humanity, Jesus would say, I need rest and refreshment. I get tired, I get weary, I give and I get empty. I need time alone in the presence of God, and so do you. Listen, there's some things you can't do in a crowd. This is great that you're in church today. You need to be stimulating one another to love and good deeds. You need to be hearing the word of truth taught. But you know what else you need? what Jesus needed. Time alone with God. Because there are some things you can't do in a crowd. This is one of them. He sought time alone with God. Daily devotions is taking time out of love for God alone, and it is taking time to be refreshed in communion with God alone. Look at the end of chapter, or rather the middle, verse 30, just the context right before the feeding of the 5,000. The, the, the disciples have been sent out on their first missionary mission. They're coming back to give a report. Verse 30, And the apostles gathered together with Jesus, chapter 6, and they reported to him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, Come away by yourselves to a lonely place and rest a while. 
parenthetical. The reason for that, for there were many people coming and going, and they did not even have time to eat. And they went away to the boat, in the boat, to a lonely place by themselves. Why? Spiritual refreshment and retreat. Why? Ministry fatigue. Why? Physical fatigue. Didn't even have time to eat. There's another fatigue, emotional fatigue. Because what they had just heard, parallel passage, and it's referenced here, but it's not made plain what's being done. They not only reported about their missionary journey, they reported that, that the, uh, John the Baptist, cousin of Jesus, forerunner of Christ, that great kingdom advancer has been beheaded. John's gospel records that before they gave the report, The disciples came, took the body away of John, and they reported this to Jesus. So don't miss this. That's traumatizing. This trumpet for God, this forerunner of the Messiah has been beheaded. He's gone. The home team has lost their best player other than Jesus. That's emotionally crippling. They're physically tired. It's endless ministry. So they try to get away, and guess who shows up? 5,000 plus men and women. They're on overtime. The answer to overtime, stress and fatigue, loss and need, is time with God alone. You need to rest like me. You need to get what you don't have. Understand that you have needs that only God supplies. God gives rest to the weary. Maybe it would sound like this. I need God, and so do you. Discipleship lesson number two. Discipleship lesson number three, which is the heart of this passage. I am sovereign. I rule. I don't react. I am human. I need what you need, and I get it the way you need to get it. I get tired. I relate to you. You need to relate to God like me. Third thing, I am, this should be obvious, God. I am superhuman. I'm not just a man. Remember when Jesus uh, told the wind and the waves to get quiet? You know, he's sleeping at the back. This is the end of Mark chapter 4. They wake him up. Don't you care that we're perishing? Water's coming over the side of the boat. He gets up and he says, hush. We use the word peace, but it's a command. It's not like peace. It's hush. We would say shut up, but we're not allowed to use that term at my house. So it's hush. And you know what happened? Immediate calm. No wind, no rogue waves. And you remember what the disciples said? What kind of man is this? That even the wind and the waves obey him. Wouldn't you think they might have known this was more than a man? Oh, and then you have another wave of evidence. You have the demoniac, the guy that nobody could shackle, the guy that nobody could deliver, the guy who lived in the graveyard, the guy that Jesus liberated, the demonized man who in Mark 6 or Mark chapter 5 verse 15 is sitting clothed in his right mind. The uncontrollable being relieved. The wave of evidence, Jesus stopped the unstoppable. He released the unreleasable. And then he healed the unhealable. Mark chapter 5 went on to talk about the woman with the issue of blood 12 years. She not only touched the hem of his garment, but the disciples heard him say, who touched me? She did. And he said, today you are relieved. You are healed of your affliction, your torment. 
what she couldn't buy with doctors, what she couldn't find with many efforts. He healed the unhealable. He released the unreleasable. He stopped the unstoppable wind and waves. And then he raised the unraisable because in the middle of heading to the synagogue official's house to minister to his daughter, the woman touches him, healed, and then he gets to the house, takes Peter, James, and John into the official's house, sent everybody else away, same command authority, and he said, Talitha kum, little girl rise up. So a little girl who's dead comes to life. And then... 5,000 women and children, maybe 20,000. I've got seven loaves, a few fish. I watch him feed them all. Nobody's hungry. Wouldn't you think you know Jesus is not just a man? Wouldn't you think that he's not just a teacher or a promised prophet, Messiah? Wouldn't you think he's more than an earthly king? You should, but apparently that conviction is hard to realize. Because we have trouble. We we sang a song today, I had rocks in my head. Wasn't that what it said? What, What did it say? Was it rocks in my head? Yeah, you know what that means. I'm boneheaded. Look at the last verse, 52. 52 says, they had not gained any insight from the latest revelation about the person of Jesus Christ from the incident of the loaves because their heart was hard. They didn't get it. Now, you can beat those guys up and say, I'd have got it. Or you could say, in our humanity, it's a difficult conviction to embrace and own. And what Jesus would say, which is the heartbeat of this passage, that's non-negotiable. You have to be locked down solid on my identity as God, here it is, who can do anything at any time with anyone. Because the world and missional activity I'm sending you into, you need to be confident that I'm with you. It doesn't matter what the score says or the circumstances are. I can do anything. And you've got to believe that because you know what? The odds are against you. It's frightening. You may lose your job. You may lose your reputation. You may lose your home. Who knows what's coming? I'm commissioning. I'm with you, and I can do anything, and you've got to know this. And you're prone to have a hard heart about this, a head full of rocks. I want you to see a phrase that makes all the difference. It's the one that's most troublesome. Verse 48, he sees them straining at the oars. The wind was against them at about the fourth watch, 3 to 6 a.m., darkest of the dark. He came to them, that's the main verb, walking on the water. Here's the troublesome phrase, and he intended to pass by them. Now, does that bother anybody? Was he playing a game? Just checking it out? I mean, some commentators say that Jesus was being playful. Some commentators say he doesn't want the disciples to know who he is. The problem with that is the text doesn't say that. And what he does after what he says blatantly says he wants them to know who he is. That's a ghost. No, it's not a ghost. It is I. What does that mean? Everything. Turn with me to... The first pass by, and it all turns on he intended to pass by. Now, I want to tell you what it doesn't say. He intended to pass them by. He intended to pass by them, which is not pass them by. There are two, this is parakamai. In the Old Testament, the motif for the canvas to understand what this means is housed in two pass by events. Pass by event number one is Exodus 33. The subject is Moses. The situation is gloomy. Gloomy because he'd gone to the mountain to receive revelation from God. He returns with stones engraved with the finger of God. And the people of God, out of concern that their God was gone because they associated Moses with that, had manufactured through Aaron their own God, a molten calf fashioned from jewelry. 
and they celebrated their new God with a party, a debauched party. And coming down from the mountain, God had already spoken to Moses. Moses shatters the stones in anger and frustration. And God said, I'm so angry with these people, I'm going to start over again with you. Moses says, in response to the debauchery and the idolatry, everybody who stands with God, you come join me. Levites did. 3,000 died that day. We're going to exterminate this infectious, toxic idolatry that diminishes God. And then God says, I'm not going to walk with these people because if I walk with these people, they will die. They're obstinate. They're stubborn. They're hard to lead. And then he says, Moses, you lead them. I'll go with you. That's the context. Moses responds to God, Exodus 33, 12, whom will you send with me? God said, my presence shall go with you and I will give you rest. So it's a frustrated, tough, troublesome time. Moses is entrusted to lead and he's nervous and uncertain about leading. God says, I'll go with you and I will give you rest. Exodus 33, 15, if your presence does not go up with us, do not lead us from here. God, in essence, says, I will go with you. Verse 18, Moses said, affirm that, validate that. Moses said, I pray thee, show me your glory. That was the validation of God's presence, glory being an expression of his divine perfections, undeniable evidence of his assurance and presence, Show me your glory. And God said, Yahweh, I myself will make all my goodness. Now watch this. Look at the words. I will make all my goodness pass before you. And I will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. And I will be gracious to whom I'll be gracious and show compassion on whom I'll show compassion. But you cannot see my face. No man can see me and live. Verse 21, then the Lord said, behold, there is a place by me. You shall stand there on the rock and it will come about that my glory is, while my glory, see it, is passing by. I will put you in the cleft of the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Now look up for a minute. Passing by is God revealing God undeniably to the man of God who needs to know who God is and what God can do in order to fulfill the commission that seems impossible. When Jesus says, I, when the scripture says he intended to pass by, that is a God revealing God event. It's God validating to disciples who hard-heartedly hadn't gotten it, but they need to get it, so he is undeniably doing what only God can do. Who can walk on the water? God alone. God alone can walk on the water. He's doing what only God can do, and he is saying what only God would say. It is I. Ego, I, a me. State of being verb, I am. Heard that before? It's not just it is I, Jesus. The I am is the one you're looking at. Doing what only the I am can do. The one who created the water, the one who parted the water, is the one who is with you while you're on the water, and he walks on the water. Moses needed a pass-by event, and the disciples needed a pass-by event. Turn over to 1 Kings chapter 19. Man, time's flying, Josh. Anybody have roast in the oven? Good. (laughs) I'll hurry. There's another pass-by event. Major player, Elijah, not just Moses. The backstory. Prophets of Baal, fire from heaven. Who's God? Fire comes down from heaven. Prophets of Baal are consumed. The wood gets wetted. The sacrifice gets wetted. And God laps it up with fire. Then Elijah kills 450 prophets of Baal. Then Elijah goes and prays for rain. It hasn't rained in three years. You think the drought is bad in your area? Three years, no rain. He prays, it rains. 
chapter 19, verse 1. Now Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done, the great victory at Mount Carmel, along with the death of the false prophets, all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. And Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, here's her commitment, public statement, so may the gods do to me, and even more, if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by tomorrow this time, a death warrant. The response of the man of God, verse 3, and he was afraid, and he arose and ran for his life. He came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and he left his servant there. And he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness by himself, came and sat down under a juniper tree, and he requested for himself that he might die. And he says, it is enough now, O Lord, take my life, for I am not better than my father's. Suicidal thoughts can come to a person even as significant as a man of faith as Elijah. Not going to kill himself. He's asking God to kill him. What does that guy need? What every Christian needs despite victories in the face of fear. Threats on your life or your livelihood. He needs a pass-by event, assurance from God to be faithful to the calling of God. So an angel shows up, feeds him, says, arise and eat. He sleeps. Second time he's fed. And then he goes to the mountain of God, Horeb. And then you read in verse 9 of chapter 19, he came there to a cave and he lodged there. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, Yahweh, and said to him, key words, what are you doing here, Elijah? Can I interpret that for you? Why are you here and not out there doing what I commissioned you to do? You're in a cave. And Elijah said, verse 10, I have been very zealous for the Lord. I've been very zealous for Yahweh, the God of hosts, for the sons of Israel had forsaken your covenant. They've torn down your altars and killed your prophets with the sword. And I alone am left. And they seek my life to take it away. Can I interpret that for you? I'm rowing all night long. I'm going nowhere. This is killing me. My life is threatened and I'm at risk. Listen to what God does. Verse 11. So he, Yahweh, God said, Go forth, stand by on the mountain before Yahweh, and behold, Yahweh was passing by. And a great and strong wind was rending mountains and breaking in pieces the rocks before Yahweh, but Yahweh was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but... Yahweh was not in the earthquake, and after the earthquake, a fire, but, the, but Yahweh was not in the fire, and after the fire, a sound of gentle blowing. Elijah, this is what I can do. Elijah, this is who I am. I'm gentle, but I'm powerful, and I'm with you. And so... The scriptures say in verse 13, it came about when Elijah heard it that he wrapped his face in his mantle. In other words, he's taking up his symbol of work, his ministry, his calling. And he went out and stood in the entrance of the cave and a voice came to him again and said, what are you doing here, Elijah? You want me to interpret that? Why are you still here in light of who I am and how I am? Go back to doing what I called you to do. You get a sense of what the pass-by event is? He intended to pass by them to demonstrate his unrivaled capacity before them and to identify him with the name of God so they'd be convinced that the one with them was more than a man. More than a miraculous man. He was, I am, God, very God, with them. And this is the essential lesson. And the God who is with you, the one who says what only God would say, he sees them in the dark of the night. John says three to four miles out. Who sees? Not a man, God. God sees you. He sees your straining efforts. 
He sees the adversarial winds. And what does the God who sees do? There's a participle of seeing them. Because he saw them, he came to them. And he revealed himself to them in an essential critical way, in a way they wouldn't have expected at a time they didn't expect in order to lock down a conviction that feeding 5,000 and some extras couldn't fulfill. He comes because he cares. He sees and he acts. And he does what only God will do. Can you say amen to that? Now listen, this is an essential, this is a compelling belief. I don't care where you're going, I don't care how hard it is. The one who said, I am with you all the way to the end, is the God who can walk on water, part seas, shake mountains, fire from heaven. That God is with you. Keep doing what he's called you to do and be faithful to the commission of the one who has called you to do it. The best thing that can happen to you is whatever hard space is necessary that God passes by and validates, I am who I say I am. That's foundational. Father, thank you for the word of God and the people of God. Thank you for this text and its richness. And it's my prayer despite the hardness that sometimes is in my heart, that we collectively and individually would recognize you rule, and we can rest in that rule, that you provide access, bold access, to the throne of grace, and we can rest like Jesus rested, can get refreshment in communion with God and Lord. Help us to look for the undeniable revelation of the unequaled one who is with us. Help us to function out of that conviction and help us to find affirmation to that reality. We want to be faithful. And I ask it for us all in the matchless name of Jesus. And all God's people said, amen.